which meaning of the word realize do you mean? Yeah. To make real or to understand? Uh, when I use the word realize, so the question is, what, what meaning of the word realize am I talking about? To, uh, when I say to realize, I mean to experience for oneself from your own experience and to know. And then, not only that, but to, to have no choice but to live from that understanding. So it's not, it's not because you think something. It's not because you've read something. It's not because you've logically thought something out. That's not realization. Realization comes to me, what I mean is from experience. You experience something, and in that experience there is the understanding of this is the way it is. Then if there is no way you can kind of get rid of that understanding because it's, it's, you, you've tasted it. You've tasted that experience and you have that understanding. You can't get rid of it. Then to live from that place, uh, I, I would call that manifesting realization or, or to, to realize it. Think about this. Say you were going to go to, um, let's just say that Something totally implausible. National Geographic discovers another island out in the Atlantic somewhere. Never been discovered before. And there's a whole culture of people. Well, people that live there. And they've been living there for centuries. And you have been invited to go as a tourist to kind of check it out. How would you understand what the heck they were doing? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You'd see people doing what they do. You'd see buildings or you'd see uh, behavior interactions among people. You might hear the language. You might, might or might not understand it. You, you, you'd kind of see. And so you would, you, would, you would be experiencing that. But there'd be no understanding. But if I had already been there and I'd studied them for a while and I said, hey, you know, when they do this, they really mean that. When they do this, they mean that. And this doesn't mean that, you know. When they, you know, <laughs> to give you an example, you know, in our culture, if you give somebody the finger, it means something, you know. But in that culture, it means, hi, I love you, aloha, you know, meta, hey, hey. You know, <laughs> you know but if you didn't understand that, you'd be really uh, kind of lost. So it's not just experience. That's why I say experience is not enough. Just experiencing something. That's not enough. It doesn't tell you anything. It's how you understand that experience. That's what's important. So, your understanding, uh, uh, I should say, experience and understanding coming together uh, to, to reveal this. To understand that, that's what I would call realization. Yeah. I know, I know. That's why we need that microphone. Where is it? There's two going around here somewhere. I listened to uh, one of the one of Gil's talks the other day. I just went online just to check it out, or some question and answer thing. And I, I that's where I noticed that. Oh, they said, wait, wait, wait till you get the microphone, and you'd be sit, you know, I'd be sitting listening to the thing and wait, wait, and I could just imagine somebody walking the microphone. <laughs> you know, and then you could hear the question, which is always good, you know, you like to know where it is. So please. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could 
your distinction between stepping back from an experience and being inside the experience is not really very intelligible. Uh, I, I recognize certain bodily sensations, and those are uncomfortable. That's all I have. So I don't have any dichotomy between those two things. I mean, from what I gather, stepping back is, is supposed to be less suffering, less painful than being enmeshed in, but I don't, okay. I don't experience that distinction. Okay, let me, let me address that one very quick. So this is a good point, because this is exactly where I think a lot of us start, and a lot of us spend a lot of time, is, be, is um, you know, we, we tune in to what's going on, the experience. And, you know, you say, well, I'm aware of these body sensations, and they're painful, and it's a lot of suffering. Well, what's that? How... You know, why do I want to be aware of that? The, the missing element in, in this case, and I'll use the word stepping, I've used the word stepping back. What I want to, I want to add another word, which is to recognize. There is the recognition of the discomfort. But I want you to recognize something else. There is the recognition of the knowing of the discomfort. And that's not insignificant. I know, I know you're going, oh my God, now what? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, bury my face in my hands. But it's, it's true. Experiencing pain is one thing. Knowing that you're experiencing discomfort is a totally different experience. Being angry, thinking about your anger, and being aware of anger. Three completely different experiences. Being in pain, thinking about your pain, and being aware of your pain are three completely different experiences. So what is the element? What is the piece that comes to make it not just experiencing pain, but awareness of pain? What is the missing element? The missing element is... There's a recognition. There's a knowing of the knowing. There's a recognition of the knowing. There's a, rec- there's a, there's a well, I say stepping back. Uh, it's more like, it's not really stepping back so much as turning around. <laughs> you know, it's like, here it is, the awareness of pain. Here's the pain. Here's the awareness. But when we first contact it, it's just, I'm in pain. And slowly when we can, can we, we can start to, we can start to recognize the pain, we're still kind of stuck in it like this. We're still part of it. We're still enmeshed in it. It's like my pain, I'm, I'm in pain. But when there's a recognition of the awareness, there's, it's like a little bit of, a little bit of, well, what is it? What is that? It's a little bit of space, isn't there? A little bit of spaciousness in the mind. There's a little bit of distance between the awareness and the pain. Okay? That's, that's the whole, the little solvent that we pour on this experience is called awareness, mindfulness. And the uh, awareness or mindfulness is the solvent that dissolves the glue of identification. The glue of identification says, I'm in pain. 
Mindfulness says, pain is being known. Oh, wait, wait. We need to... Hey, that's good, you know. Everybody gets a moment to just kind of like unplug, slow down the momentum of the the rush. Wait, no. Okay, now you have the microphone. And isn't there also one more aspect, which is really understanding pain, and then it's not pain anymore, it's just a whole slew of sensations. And it's this what is, looks like the same pain turns out to be different combinations of sensations. And oh, so this on. is true. This is true. The initial, the initial uh, understanding is pain is being known. But as long as there's a keep, as long as there's a, a non-reactivity to that, an awareness of that, you'll see that that thing that looked like solid pain, you know, the stabbing in the back or the emotional pain, the fear or the sadness or whatever it is, if you keep looking at that, if, they keep, if the continuity, this is an important piece, when the continuity of awareness is really sharp, meaning it's very con- when awareness is very continuous, just moment to 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 moment, it will be recognized that this pain is not solid. It's not pain. It's not a solid thing. It is a dynamic, fluxing, uh, uh, unfolding of sensations. Not only sensations, but sensations and thoughts and emotions and memories and plans and intentions and thoughts of revenge and all kinds of things are proliferating in this thing called pain. And when the continuity of awareness is such that it can steadily, and when in a non-reactive way, just notice and know that it's noticing that pain, then you'll see that that which we call pain isn't really as it appears. It isn't really pain. It isn't. It's all kinds of sensations and thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories and plans. All kinds of stuff in there. Which, when glued all together and identified with, feels like pain. Emotional pain, physical pain. But that's just a superficial appearance of things. There is a reality, you know, that is uh, beyond the appearance of things. Yeah. So I was grappling with this idea of pain and awareness of it because it doesn't all all of a sudden, and I think starting to to have some space around it, because pain doesn't all of a sudden happen. There's a progression of it. So, for instance, um, I'm a nurse, and I tell people, you have to move, or you're going to get a bed sore. So, they've been lying there, they've been lying there, and this sore is starting to happen. But, but most people aren't really aware and until it's a sore, and it's painful. But there's been a movement towards that. 
or um, someone has a heart attack, there's been a movement towards it. Mm. So it's not really an all of a sudden thing. It seems mm. like it's an all of a sudden thing, but it's not. Mm. Or you have the piece of sand in your shoe and then... So, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, uh, this is a good point. Because what the untrained mind will see is the the end result of things and think is just a, just disappeared. The untrained mind just sees heart attack. It just sees bed sore. It just sees pain. It just sees like, well, what did I do to deserve this? Huh. You know, but the trained mind will have seen all the little steps, as you say, all the little steps of thoughts and beliefs and intentions and, and you know, ignoring this and putting aside that and dismissing this and that, that led up to it. It's not the, the heart attack or the bed sore or the blister or the mood or the anger or whatever it is, the emotional drama, is the effect of a lot of prior conditions. The trained mind will see those prior conditions before they ever co- uh, kind of coagulate, if you will, to produce the effect. The trained mind will say, you know what, I know where this is going. I don't want to go there. You know that, uh, I don't know the poet, but you know that poem that, that includes this line, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are dangerous neighborhoods in the mind. You want to take your awareness with you when you go wandering around in the mind. Because otherwise, you'll end up in a mood, an emotional drama. You'll end up in some confusion. You'll end up suffering. So, be sure to take your awareness with you. You know, all the time. Because the mind is working all the time. So, you know, as much as possible, take your mindfulness with you. Take your awareness with you. Are we... um, Let me just do a time check. It's 11.30... We've been sitting here for an hour talking about the first one. <laughs> we better make this a weekend event. <laughs> so, um, let's just take five, five minutes, stand up, stretch, take a, get a glass of water and stuff like that. Okay? Uh, and we're doing this because the conditions have finally given rise to discomfort and whatnot, and so we're following our intention to relieve the discomfort. 4.12, let's, let's, uh, let's do another round until 12.30, break for an hour for lunch, till 1.30, come back and sit till 2, and then have another couple hours, two, or two and a half hours in the afternoon. But seeing that we spent a lot of time on the preface, <laughs> It's clear we're not going to get through, I mean, because anything is an entree to everything else. So, in the next, for the next 40 minutes, um, what should we do? Pick a chapter. Two, four, five. Okay. Am I going to address the idea of impermanence? All things pass. Okay, next. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there'll be, there'll be a place today. How should we decide? What are, I mean, what is... Listen to me. What's it? What was that? Listen to 
Listen to me. Yeah, right. It's all about me. Uh, draw numbers. Okay. Let me just let me just do a quick thing. Um, purification of conduct. That's all about sila, precepts, and restraint. They're chapters. One, two, three. Oh no, 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 no. We can we can jump in anywhere. Although chapter seven would be a toughie. That'd be a hard one to kind of make sense of. I think. Mm, you know. No. <laughs> I, I I have no preference. I mean, I, I've spent years with this book, but. No, no, it's, it's, it's available. It's available. It's available. Um, two is about dealing with the hindrances and stuff. Number three is, yeah, experience and belief, huh? And, and how, to, how to deal with authorities and texts and traditions and things like that. Number four is, uh, doesn't a dog understand it's walking? Yes. But is that what the Buddha meant? Hmm, no. Okay, so that, that we've been talking a little bit about that, the, the, the sequence of intentions following uh, condi- the impersonal conditioning of cause and effect. What can I do to prepare for enlightenment? There's a whole section on the back, chapter 5. Chapter 6, uh, map of the path. What's to be discovered in chapter 7? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I'm, I'm open to anything. Go ahead. Yeah, you got the microphone. Is this on? Yeah. It is? Okay. So a lot of what we've talked about so far are the sorts of things that we would hear on any retreat, at any Dharma talk. Are there things in here that we would not hear other places and in other ways that would be unique to the topic here today? Hmm. No. <laughs> there is, there is actually. Uh, I guess I think the the general topics are, are all stuff that we hear on uh, on uh, on Dharma, in Dharma talks on retreats and things. But uh, hopefully that there'll be some little pieces that I add that might be a little more a refinement of understanding or a little more um, subtle understanding or, or a little more fuller understanding than sometimes what you get in the Dharma talks is kind of like headline Dharma. Headline Dharma. And sometimes we don't get the opportunity uh, to go into things a little more more deeply. So I think any of the topics, there's the potential for hearing a little bit more. I'm not sure that I'll have it in there. I don't know what you've heard already. Maybe all the people who really care yeah. <laughs> Those who really care about what you do for the next 35 minutes. Why don't I just pick? Okay. Let's go to chapter um, chapter 5. Let's go look at these preparations for practice. It's something you've got on the back. And I'll tell you why. Because... <clears throat> We, we, you know, all of us have come to Dharma practice in some way. We've kind of wandered into a, a, a class like this. We've wandered into a retreat. We've, 
we've picked up a book, we've done, somehow we've kind of come to it and we're in the stream now. We're, we're, I mean, don't take that literally. We're kind of following a thread of uh, Dharma. And most of us or all of us are doing some form of practice uh, of, of awareness and maybe we're developing just tranquility, maybe we're developing, maybe we're practicing in order to develop insight and understanding. But, you know, in some traditions, to receive further teachings or advanced teachings, you have to put in years, years of preliminary practices. And sometimes, you know, like in the Tibetan tradition, they often call it the secret teachings or they, they, there, are, there are preparatory practices before you can receive certain teachings. And there can be some confusion as to, well, what do you mean secret teachings? Why can't I? Why, why don't you teach me? You know, you know, and it's, it's how we understand that's important. And it's just like here, uh, you know, I could go talk about chapter seven, what I, what I want to talk about there. But, you know, until you've, you know, got some of your own experience and you've really practiced uh you won't you'll understand it at some level, but not very deeply. And so the question arises, well, how do I because we're mostly talking about insight, development of insight in this in this seminar. Um, so the, the question arises, what do I need to do? What practices do I need to do? What do I need to acquire in order to be prepared for insight? Anybody can sit down and be mindful if you get some instruction and start being mindful. But for, for insight to arise, what, how does the mind need to be prepared? How do we need to prepare? How, what can we do to prepare the mind for insight is, is maybe more appropriate. Now, let me, let me just step back and say, well, well what is insight anyway? In, in, this tradition, in the Theravada tradition that Mahasi Sayadaw was teaching in, this is the, um, I don't know, it's, it's a tradition of Buddhism as it is currently in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka. And, you know, filtering into the West too. Insight is the English word used for the Pali word, vipassana. <clears throat> vipassana means uh, basically to see things clearly, to see things insightfully. And, or to, it's, it's not to see, but literally to understand things insightfully. Uh, so, wh- what does that mean? Many of you who've been practicing will know that, you know, if you sit down and you just pay attention and you're, you're trying to be mindful, you know, you can have some really fascinating and, and insightful experiences, you know, about yourself and your family and your relationships. And my God, there's all kinds of insights that come about how you could, you know, manage your to-do list and, yeah, you know, what car to buy and how to invest. And there's all kinds of insights that come. But that's not what vipassana means. Vipassana means uh, does it doesn't really refer to the kind of the, the mundane level of kind of get your household act together. 
It doesn't even really deal with or doesn't refer specifically to uh, the psychological level, you know, the, the personality level of how I am the way I am and why I am and, you know, what my mother did to me and what my father didn't do to me and, and how I have become the personality that I am. And there's, of course, there's a tremendous amount of suffering involved in our identification with personality stuff. And we do need those insights into the creation of our personality default settings in order to disentangle and get less identified with some of that so we're not suffering so much. But even that is not Vipassana. So what is it that Vipassana is pointing to or insight, Vipassana insight is pointing to that is different than psychological insight or emotional insight or family of origin stuff or, or ordinary daily life stuff? Well, Vipassana means to have uh, the clear understanding of what are called the three characteristics. And the three characteristics of all phenomena are that they're impermanent, anicca, anicca is the Pali word, that they're dukkha, which is the Pali word, it's translated as uh, unsatisfactory. Uh, They're unsatisfactory because they are either painful, they are changeable, uh, or they are oppressive. And all experience has that characteristic, one of those characteristics. And the third characteristic, or the third of the three insights that... understandings that come through insight practice is to understand the anatta characteristic. This has sometimes been translated as the egolessness or the selflessness uh, of, of experience. And those are so just terrifying terms to a lot of us like, uh, oh my God, what am I going to do without my ego? Or what am I going to do? What do you mean selfless? What you, uh, that just doesn't even make sense. So I don't like to use those words and they don't really point to the experience which the anatta characteristic really how, how it's experienced is that we, we deeply see how impersonal this whole thing is impersonal in the sense that it, it you know the body and mind arises and passes away moment to moment and it's like we're just along for the ride, and you can see that you can really, you can really, when the when the continuity of awareness is so steady, you can just see how impersonal it all is. This is seeing the anatta characteristics. It's ephemeral uh, experience is ephemeral, evanescent, impersonal, conditioned, and there is there's just no solid substantive thing, either in the mind or the body to which we can cling and claim as the unchanging me. Well, these insights into just what, just the fact of impermanence, the fact of dukkha, the truth of dukkha, and the the characteristic of the anatta characteristic, um, we can see, you know, if I said, you know, 
You know, haven't you ever noticed that the seasons change? Of course. Haven't you ever noticed that you're growing old? Of course. Haven't you ever noticed that, you know, there's pain in the body? Of course. Haven't you ever noticed how on automatic pilot your mind is much of the time? Of course. Those are kind of, uh, those are the knowledge of Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha at a very, uh, what's the word? I don't want to say gross or mundane or it's at a very composite level. It's at a composite level. At the level of the, the composite of the seasons and the body and the mind, yes. But true insight and the place where liberation happens is when these characteristics are seen moment to moment in every experience. What are we talking about? I forgot. Oh, Ah, yeah, preparing for insight. That's right. <laughs> I forgot. Okay, so now, if, if the mind is ever going to be able to open to just how the truth of dukkha, for example, how every experience, now get this, every experience of mind or body that anyone has ever had has the characteristic of dukkha. Meaning, it's either painful, and we know that. It's painful physically, it's painful mentally or emotionally. Or, it's unstable and doesn't last. And because it doesn't last, it leaves us with this insecure feeling. When things don't last, they're forever shifting and changing, and you can't help but be insecure. Not knowing what's coming next. That's dukkha. Or the, the, the third element of, of dukkha means that its uh, uh, experience is oppressive. And there's two, there's two ways. To, there's the macro view of the oppressivity of experience. And there's the micro view. The macro view is we're born and for a few years, our parents take care of us. You know, they feed us and they bathe us and they clothe us and they coo us and they educate us and they love us and they train us and do all that. And then after a few years, they say, you're on your own. And we've got to take care of this body and mind. And so you have to take care of this body and you have to feed it and groom it and dress it and keep it comfortable and keep shifting the posture around. And you've got you to go to the toilet every day several times. And, and you've got to do that. You know, you don't have any choice and nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to take care of this body. And that's the easy part. You've got this mind. And you also have to take care of this mind. You know, and the mind is, needs to be entertained. You've got to keep the mind distracted and entertained and, and fascinated and dis, you know, deluded. And you, got, you just got to keep the mind happy. Or if you don't, it's going, to be, it's going to make you miserable. And you have to do this. And you have to do it for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades. Every moment. Decades you have to take care of this body and mind. And if you don't, you'll suffer. And even when you do, you still suffer. That's dukkha. That's dukkha. Now, we can hear this and we go, we either go, oh my God, I'm going to get depressed. Or we go, we kind of, we kind of, kind of like, you know, we kind of get it and we just kind of laugh out loud like, oh my God, this is, this, 
you know, we're kind of like stunned. But what is it going to take? What is it going to take for the mind to really open to that truth and deal with it? And deal with it in a way that there's no suffering. With all that, no suffering. What is the mind going to, what are you going to have to do to the mind? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's an important question to ask. What is, if you're going to pull out all the foundation, all the underpinnings of the security and the safety and the whatever it is that you have in your life now that, that, that makes you feel, that allows you to feel comfortable and secure and happy and at ease and kind of like, kind of got things under control. If you're going to take out all that, what's going to be there to support you? That's why we need to prepare for practice. Because if we don't have the underpinnings in the mind to support awareness, we'll never take these uh, false foundations, these false foundations of happiness out of the mind. We'll never be able to let go of these deluded forms of happiness until and unless we prepare the mind to accept the truth. And the truth of dukkha is not easy to, to accept. It's not. We'll get depressed. We'll get angry. We'll get fearful. We'll get you know, fretful. We'll get ambitious. We'll, get all kind of, we'll do anything except, except accept the truth of dukkha. We have distracted ourselves for lifetimes from accepting this truth. Now we have the opportunity. But in order to do that, we need to prepare the mind. This is Mahasi Sayadaw's suggestions for preparing the mind to awaken to the truth of insight, to the truth of dukkha, to the truth of impermanence, and to the truth uh, of the, the characteristic of the anatta characteristic, just how impersonal this all is. So, let me just read. If you aspire to attain, to attain, this is what Mahasi Zaito says, if you aspire to attain path knowledge, fruition knowledge, and nibbana in this very life, you should cut any impediments during your time of meditation practice through the following preparations. Well, let me just, uh, for a show of hands, does anybody know what path and fruition knowledge is? Just how many, how many could, could how many, how many think they could really t- know for sure what the path knowledge and fruition knowledge is? Ron, you know. Yeah, know about. Know about. I don't mean have experience. I don't mean have experience. I just mean, do you know what he's talking about here? No, I'm not talking about the Eightfold Path. Path knowledge. One, two, three, four, five, six, maybe. Six. It's enlightenment. Path knowledge is enlightenment. Fruition knowledge is further enlightenment. Enlightenment. Huh? Why didn't I say that? Huh? Because and when I say enlightenment, that's kind of like, wow, bang, got ah, enlightened. But he says it's a knowledge. It's a knowledge that's important. Okay? So it's the knowledge of the path. It's the knowledge of fruition. And it's the knowledge of nibbana. Now it says, if you aspire to attain enlightenment in this very life, this is what you need to do. Let me ask you, really, 
do you aspire to be, become enlightened in this lifetime? Really? Really? I mean, you know what it's going to take? No, we don't know. I mean, that's just it. We don't know yet, do we? Huh? But that's what he's saying. If you aspire to. If you don't aspire to, don't waste your time. That's it. If you don't aspire to really, you know, it, it's not quite to say waste your time. But, you know, any practice that you do, any Dharma practice, whether it's study, reading, discussion, or practice, is useful. It will develop the path until you attain path knowledge, of course. <clears throat> but what he's saying is that for the very, you know, to aim towards, you know, the space station, so to speak, of the Buddha's teachings, these are the preliminary practices. So purify your moral conduct. You know what that means? Of course, you know, act and speak in a compassionate, loving way at all times. Mean making 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 that your default setting. That, that's a preliminary practice. That's not the end of practice. That's a preliminary practice to developing insight. Wait, 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 wait. I can't hear you until you put on the microphone. Most of my retreat practice has been with Upandita and his disciples and... They are, can get really angry with you. They are really angry in um, Dharma Hall and not with me, but I heard he, they can be really angry sometimes with one-on-one students as well. And I always wondered the dichotomy between the first thing you have to do is have compassionate speech, compassionate understanding and what they do. And they really seem enlightened in other ways. So the question is, you know, how do you understand others' behavior? Now, I'm going to take I'm going to take five minutes to to defend Upandita. <laughs> Not that he needs defending, but Upandita, as as you have experienced and as others of you may have heard, he is a very demanding uh, Dharma teacher, extraordinary demanding. He requires you to to really be clear if you aspire, if, you know. You know, if, if you aspire to this in, your very, in, in this very life, then he's willing to work with you. If you haven't made that decision, well, do the prep work. Okay? But once you get there to practice with him, he will expect you to have that as the goal in your practice. And so, if you've really made that decision that this is what you aspire to, he's the person to practice with. Because there's nowhere else to go in practicing with him, if you if you wish to attain that. Now, um, some people say, like like you have heard and maybe you've experienced, that he seems like maybe he's angry, or some of his the the, the teachers that work with him seem like they're really angry. At, they get angry at you in practice for not practicing right or hard enough or something, and sometimes. Superficially, that may be an appearance. But my experience, and I've practiced it for 20 years, is that's not anger. That is compassion. 
I know that sounds weird, but Sayadaw Ubandita has an understanding of suffering. The suffering in the mind that is extraordinary. It's very, very refined. He understands that we're suffering in ways that we don't even know we're suffering. And he won't let you off the hook until you discover for yourself that level of suffering. So if you think there's any way that you're going to kind of cut corners or you're going to get through it quick or whatever, you know, quickness and easiness, that's not, you know, a given. But he is going to make sure that you see that suffering. If there's any suffering in there to be seen in, your, in the mind, if there's any suffering to be seen in the mind, you are going to discover it practicing with him. And if you keep practicing with him, you'll let go. You will definitely get let go of it. And that's, that's all he cares about, is that you see the first noble truth of suffering and that you realize the third noble truth, the end of suffering. Everything else, irrelevant. And so it can seem like, whether, he's, whether you think he's nice or not, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's not in a popularity contest with anybody. He doesn't care what you think about him. He cares whether you understand suffering and the end of suffering. That's it. And, uh, you know, if you, if you go to him for anything other than discovering the truth of dukkha, suffering, you're going to be uh, frustrated and disappointed. You know? Because in discovering the truth of dukkha, you will discover the, the end of dukkha. You know? So I see that that, that demeanor, which could be interpreted or misunderstood as anger or criticism or whatever, uh, is really coming from a place of profound understanding and just infinite compassion for your suffering. And a lot of people cannot practice with him because he's, you know, it's not comfortable. Their minds, they're not comfortable with their minds. Not him, it's their minds they're not comfortable with. But that's nevertheless. <coughs> so purify your moral conduct and cultivate the wish. May my moral conduct be supportive. Now listen to this one. If you suspect that you have may have ever committed some offense towards an enlightened person, you should apologize for your mistake. Now let me ask you, have you ever committed an offense against an enlightened person? How do you know who's enlightened? The obvious question is, how do you know who's enlightened? Right? You don't know. We don't know. Nobody's got halos. You know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we don't wear halos if you get enlightened. So it's like you don't know. So that means, for any offense, if you think that you've ever offended anyone, apologize. That, this is prep work. This is prep work. Even to be able to do that, was, it would not be easy. Would it? To be able to apologize for all the times you've offended somebody, knowingly and unknowingly, and all the, all the resentment and grudges that you're still holding on. You've got to kind of work through all that in preparation for developing insight, which is then the path for realizing or, become, or attaining, realizing enlightenment. So, embedded in this simple things like oh, just purify your conduct, moral conduct and apologize to those you've made offense to is all the psychological work that you'll ever have to do. Because if you do, if you do this prep work, you're going to come to an understanding of your, the, the personality and the psychological level and all the, all the pain and all the hurt that people have caused you and you've caused others and get over it. 
and then get on the path of practice that leads to insight and awakening. So this, and this, and this is just one paragraph in the book that he doesn't even go on to explain. He's got other books explaining each of these things. But, okay. Uh, and here's an interesting one. If you can't go to the person and apologize, because often you can't, they're either deceased or they don't live around you anymore or whatever, then apologize to a teacher. Why is it important to, to have a teacher that you can apologize to or, or to acknowledge that to and, and to, um, and to uh, publicly state that? Why, why, do you, why do you think that's important? Why would that be called a preparatory practice? Oh, wait, wait, microphones. I, I guess to, to be accountable. To be accountable. And to move on. And what? And to, and to move on. To be accountable and to be move on. Okay, so it's... So it's some sort of taking responsibility or acknowledging the way things were and letting go. Okay. Why do you think it's important that we do that to a teacher? Why can't we just kind of be accountable to ourselves and let go and move on within ourselves? Why do we need a teacher? Why do we need to... Because he says do it in front of a teacher. If you can't do it to the person, do it to a teacher or with a teacher. Why is that important? I don't know. Try it again. There. Because as you make the apology, there's a lot of other content besides your words, like your mood and your resistance Mm. and... Other things that go along with it, and the teacher can recognize that and uh, follow up with you on that so mm-hmm. that you really experience uh, what you're talking about rather than mm. simply summarizing it in words. Yeah, that, that's a good point. There certainly is that element of um, you know, kind of being authentic and, and any limitation that shows up in your demeanor and speech might be pointed out to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Follow on that. Um, you, uh, you, can, you, you would have less self-delusion if you just say the apology in your head, you know, to yeah. the... Yeah. Yeah. To the less self-illusion. Less self-delusion. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a really good point. There's, we could go on more, but let me, let me, let me offer my, my guess. Um, my, my experience is that the path to uh, awakening or to path knowledge, fruition knowledge, is, uh, is challenging. And there are places on the path where you cannot navigate without a teacher. You cannot. You can't go there alone. I mean, you, you will go there alone, but you need the guidance of a teacher. You will stop practice 
It is so, uh, what we could say, scary. It is so unfamiliar. It is so counterintuitive. It is so just like not what you expect. No matter what you expect, it's not what you expect. That you will stop practice. You will go backwards. And if you don't have a teacher that you can absolutely trust at that time, that you will you'll do what they say no matter what they say. If you don't have a relationship with a teacher at that time, you cannot navigate that path, that part of the path. You won't. And so this apologizing in front of a teacher is the beginning of developing the relationship of trust with someone that you're going to entrust your practice to. I mean, you have to do the practice. It's true. But you're going to get guidance from someone or someones. And if you don't have a relationship with someone to guide you through these places, you will never go through them. You'll get up to them in this tradition. And then when it gets too difficult and you get lost, you get confused, you get whatever, you'll go to another teacher and you'll get up to the same place in that. But if you don't have a, a, a trusting relationship with someone, you'll never navigate that path, that part of the path. Just not possible. And so this is the preliminary work to, um, to develop your trust in and confidence in a teacher. A specific person. You know, it's not a book. It's a person. Because you're going to, at some point, you're going to be talking about your practice in a way that is totally confusing to you. It'll be totally confusing. It'll be terrifying. It'll be all kinds. It'll, it'll just be like what you don't, you, know, you don't know who to trust. And that's why you need already an, an established trust relationship with the teacher that can guide you. That, you. that when they say, you know, keep going, do this, you're on the right track or whatever, that you'll do it. Even though you don't feel like it's the right thing to do. And how are you going to do that? You can't, you know, you can't just listen to any old body says, oh, yeah, keep going. You know, your fear will be too great. Your fear will be too great. You won't do it. And so you need a teacher. But in the West, we don't have that many teachers. Okay. I was going to say, hand her the phone. It's kind of like that. In the West, we don't have that many teachers. They're not that accessible. I've been part of many discussions about Vipassana teachers not wanting to have ongoing relationships with students even if they were capable of giving that kind of guidance, which is another question. So if people don't have the ability to do things like take multiple three-month retreats, then how do they get that kind of guidance? Or what do they do? I think it's up to the student to make the relationship with the teacher. got to find the teacher in the first place and there aren't that many and there aren't that many with whom any one person is not going to be able to have that kind of a relationship with kind of any random teacher they run across it's true it's it's hard to find a teacher it's hard to find a teacher there's a lot of people talking dharma there's a lot of people teaching uh, but there may not be that many that you any one of you would entrust your practice with and so you need to keep looking keep looking there are good teachers. There are people who have been down the path and can guide you down the path. Believe me. There are, there are more than a few. And uh, if you are sincere in your practice and you approach them for that kind of guidance, I'm sure 
they will offer it to you. Absolutely sure. And it's not about multiple three-month retreats. You know, it is about your commitment to practice and you're taking the initiative to make the relationship with the teacher. And, of course, yeah, they have to agree uh, to, to whatever, uh, to offer you guidance. But, you know, we've been approached, um, speaking for myself, uh, we've been approached, my wife and I, we've been approached by different people, some to her, some to me, uh, who want that kind of guidance, ongoing guidance. And some, some people we've been guiding for 10, 15 years. You know, it may only be one retreat a year and a few phone calls, but we know where their practice is. We know where their practice is going. And uh, it works for them in that way. It's not a live-in situation like living in the monastery where I lived in Burma, for example, but within the context of our lifestyle, our lay lifestyle, doing retreats, practicing, and whatnot. If you have that kind of commitment and if you have that kind of connection with the teacher, uh, and you do have that aspiration, you can find a way. Definitely. But it has to become maybe the most important thing in your life. And that's a fact. I mean, not maybe. It will definitely have to become the most important thing in your life. Yeah. But think about it. The end of suffering. You know, it's like, I mean, what are, you, what are you doing all of this stuff in life for if it's not for, you know, it's like, yeah, it's kind of soften this and, and avoid this, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, get a little bit of contentment. But, hey, the end of suffering is like, mm, that's the big enchilada or whatever. Uh, I've been, uh, had gone through this question. Yeah, it's working. Good. Um, and I just, a word of encouragement. Our struggles are not that unique. No. <laughs> you know, a teacher can recognize what's going on with you without maybe knowing, you know, where you were born or what happened to your brother when he was seven. Um, so and I'm a retired English teacher, and so I've been able to generalize this principle to Dharma mm. teachers. Mm. Um, so as long as you can trust the person, you don't have to have that much daily contact that this is a really good point you know if if it's a relationship of personality you want with a teacher they're probably going to say no a skillful teacher a wise teacher would say no way but if it's a teach if it's a, a relationship of guidance and practice like you say the mind the unfolding of the mind is follows certain rules and the teacher a skillful teacher a good teacher should know the rules because they've confirmed them through their own practice then they can guide you through, through that kind of contact. And it's not about your personal dramas in life at all. It's about understanding. How do you understand what the nature of your experience is now? And so there is a certain generic uh, uh, path of the unfolding of the mind. But each of us experiences it very personally. Yeah. The teacher knows both the personal nature of it because they've been through it and they know the generic nature because they've seen a lot of people go through the same path go, go over the same terrain yeah. that's what I mean. that's, it's interesting this, this book this, uh, this manual that Mahasi Sayadaw wrote it's you know he, he taught a certain way in Burma and he just insisted that everybody practice the same way and he could track them he would track them day by day just what was going on in their practice and you know, people made fantastic progress, if you will, so to speak, progress in their practice. 
And he could track them moment, you know, day by day. He could see the shifts in the mind and just kind of make the adjustment, just give them, offer them the instruction that made the next adjustment, the next adjustment in their understanding and lead them through guidance to realize, you know, path and fruition knowledge for themselves. Then he's, he's done this for hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands. It's not like he's got ten students. Got hundreds of thousands that he and his teachers have, have guided in this way. They know the terrain very, very well. You can't tell them anything that's going on in your mind that they don't know about. They've seen it all. You know, it's all there. And it's all in this book. It's all coded in this book. You know, the instructions of how to how to understand it. And uh, you know, chapter five, even Mahasi Saidar says uh, in in his book, he says, even if you can't understand all this theoretical stuff in all the other chapters. Even with just chapter five, you could use that and probably get enlightened. Probably find path and fruition knowledge. A teacher is helpful, but in this case, that would be the teacher. But it would take absolute trust. What was said there? <laughs>